Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to your Tuesday Buckeye Talk. It's Doug Maurice, and we're doing a different version of the rants today. And I've gone through more than 2,000 texts from about mm, middle of the second quarter on through Tuesday night. No, through Monday night. It's after midnight on Tuesday as I record this. Through, through Monday night to get a sense of where the uh, most loyal, educated, dedicated Ohio State fans are. That's our focus group. Those are our tech subscribers. And so I pulled a million up. I was going to run through, I was going to do this thing where I was going to be like, hey, let's let's go through texts, starting with the middle of the game. And as fans got progressively more angry and upset and worried and panicked and more angry, and then we'll go to after the game, the immediate reaction to the loss, and then we'll do a couple hours after the game. And then we'll do the next day. And then I thought, why would we do that? Who wants to relive that game? What Ohio State fan wants to relive the blow-by-blow? You guys know how you felt. The texters know what they sent. I would say there were uh, two Fs and a C were the main thrust of uh, the text through the game and after the game. By the time we got to the next day, it was a little different. But it was mostly the the F word, um, fire, and Cooper were the main things that came up. And, the, and an interesting one that came up was not John Cooper, but Wes Fessler, who left Ohio State, I think, after four years and no wins against Michigan because the pressure was too great. So that's three Fs then. So I thought I found that very interesting. So I'm, I'm not going to read any text, but I, I've absorbed it all. Um, some of you thought it was like, uh, the texter said it was like a therapy session. Some of you said this podcast is like a therapy session. Some of you did not like the postgame podcast and the tone a lot of people think, no, well, I don't know if a lot, um, but certainly a representative sample feels like we don't get the rivalry, that we're not reacting hard enough to it. Um, and certainly you can feel that way. I, I will finish with a thought on that idea of, of what the rivalry can be and is best uh, in this era, because I do think to treat the rivalry exactly the way it was treated in the days of Woody Hayes when you think about how much everything else in the world has changed since then, it to me, it's not that your passion has to lessen, but I think you can express your passion both inwardly and outwardly, maybe in a different way, in a, in a potentially healthier way for everybody. And I don't think it has to be lessened. I really don't. I don't think it's lessened if you maybe I can, always, I can, I can feel you getting it. <laughs> it's like, I'm on edge now. You're on edge because Ohio State lost, and I'm on edge because you're on edge. Because I will say this, and this isn't about me, except it is about me. You guys listen to this podcast enough. I've never experienced this. And and I'm, I want to do something with, are the people who lived through Cooper more angry or the people who didn't live through Cooper more angry? 
if you've if you've experienced it and you went through two ten and one and you're fearing that might be ahead, does that put you more on edge? Or if you if you are someone who really grew up in Ohio State football while they were seventeen and two against Michigan up until last year, are you more on edge because you've never experienced this? I'm really curious about about. I think that Ohio State football is a very interesting generational discussion. Sports are a generational discussion, but it's such sort of a clear dividing line of those of you who came of age in the Woody era, then those of you who came of age in the in the post-Woody era, right? Earl and Coop, which are very different, but I think we can call that post-Woody. Those of you who came of age in the Trestle era, and then those of you who really became aware and involved in Ohio State football in the urban era. And I would include the day era with the urban era. I just think that you come at it from such different angles, same passion, but maybe different context. And so where we are now, I have not been through this because these last two losses, I'd only covered one Ohio State loss before that was in 2011. And that one, we all know 2011 was a weird year. So maybe it was easy. Maybe it was, I mean, it was easy, not maybe. To me, some of the roughest times for Ohio State fans since I started covering this team were in 2006 and 2007 when they lost to consecutive national title games and being the second best team in the country wasn't good enough. But Jim Trestle already had a national title and Ohio State was dominating Michigan. So it's like, what was there left to be upset about? It's like, well, you got to the national championship game against the SEC and you didn't really compete. That's what you, that's what Ohio State fans were mad about that. And they were mad. Like, let's not pretend that people weren't mad about that. So to be here now um, is just a very foreign place. And it's not as fun. I mean, honestly, right? I mean, you, I mean, what am I telling you? I'm, I'm worried about this pod, too, uh, because I don't want to podsplain your own fandom to you. And I don't want to lecture you. And I don't want to, um, I really don't want to podsplain. I don't want to explain to you how to be a fan of Ohio State. Because you guys know that better than anybody. And so we, I, I, we're we going to be cognizant of that. This is not like, this isn't a math podcast. This isn't an algorithm of how to be a fan. This isn't a, well, you know, A plus B equals C, and that's why you should be happy. That's not what sports is. It's not what sports should be. But I do want to help. Help? I don't help the right word. But maybe some context, because I do think there is a world where if the fan base handles this a certain way, I think it actually could hurt the program. And I think it could make it more difficult for Ohio State to get some players. And I think there is a world where my, my partner on the College Football Survivor Show, Shahanja Hiraja, has made me very aware of sort of the dysfunction of, of Texas football and the expectations of Texas football and what Texas thinks it is and what Texas then maybe panic strives to be and what Texas falls short of often because of the inward pressure it puts on itself to be something that maybe it, it shouldn't be so panicked over being. And I do think that's more expressed through donors and boosters and people around the university who force that pressure. That's different than just regular fans. But I do think uh, it's instructive because Texas – since the 2005, you know, national championship game, the greatest college football game of all time, and Vince Young beating USC. Since then, 
You know, they had, they had a downturn at the end of Mac Brown, about four years of a downturn with Mac Brown that Ohio State avoided by Jim Trestle sort of being gone immediately. And you didn't risk sort of a very, very, very good coach kind of maybe sliding a little bit. Ohio State kind of by by dumb luck, by bad luck, escaped that. And then through Charlie Strong and Tom Herman and now Steve Sarkeesian, Texas has struggled to get it right. And they have not given people a very long leash. And so I do think – let's do the first point now. I'm changing the pot. This has not – Ohio State has not lost to Michigan this way, has not had a situation like this in the program in the social media era. Twitter came around like I think was invented in 2006. I think was sort of getting popular by 2010. And you think about that. I mean, that's like this is the heyday of Ohio State football, right? Started with the, started with the Trestle speech. Really picks up obviously with national title in 02. And then we're in a heyday. And so in we have not, Ohio State has not experienced in this world where everything is said and heard by everyone. And it is both a great, uh, opportunity, and it can create a great burden for people. And I do think in some ways a shared experience that social media makes possible can ease pain. We share it. We relate to each other. We say, hey, this upsets me. Look, it upsets other people. Look, this is. Bu- I'm thinking about this. Look, the rest of the world is thinking about it. I think that's great. But as we all know, social media can be toxic. And I do think sometimes in sports, it's it's less a shared experience that eases the burden and more a shared experience that amplifies the anger. And that we have not experienced Ohio State, an Ohio State football, um, I don't know what to say, rough waters, right? Because even like, all right, the end of Tress, right? It's like that's Twitter's coming around right there, but that's not like on field stuff. That's... That's, I can't believe Sports Illustrated put that on the cover. I can't believe they made him resign for this. I can't believe he did that. You know, whatever side of that you run, it wasn't a football thing. It wasn't a losing football games thing. It was more of a bureaucratic thing. It was more of a media thing. It was more of a NCAA rules thing, right? It's that, that's a different discussion. That's like an egghead discussion, right? And people got mad about it, but it's not the same thing as losing a football game. Whether it's worse or not as or not not as bad, I don't know, but it's certainly not the same thing. And so then 2011, it's just like, well, it's all nuts. And then here comes Urban, and Urban fixes everything. And then the end of Urban is complicated and weird, and Zach Smith and all of that. Again, it's off the field. Michael Drake and Gene Smith and Urban Meyer and Zach Smith and how things are handled and what was right and what was wrong. But again, it's not losing football games. And then here comes Ryan Day, and there goes Urban, and it seems like everything's okay. So now this is the first football problem of the social media age. And I do think if this is this is overreacted to in a way – if it is, and if it seems – if Ohio State then presents itself to the world through its fans, maybe through its boosters – maybe through anybody who finds consecutive losses so intolerable, I do think it's possible that there will be some good players who don't want to come here. Because there is so much good here. You guys know that. Nobody knows it better than you. There's so much good here. There is so much opportunity. There is a great stadium. There is a huge, committed 
fan base. Columbus, compared to a lot of other college towns, is a great city, right? Ohio State, great university with great opportunity. Players can get to the NFL here. There are NIL opportunities. Are they as much as at Texas A&M? Maybe not, but it's not like they don't have a chance to make some money here. We know all the good things about Ohio State, and we also have always known that it comes with a burden, a burden of expectation, a burden of eyeballs, right? The Ohio State-Michigan game was like set all kinds of TV records. That's tremendous. But also when you make a mistake, everybody's watching. So that burden has always been there. And I think we have seen people feel it when they lose. C.J. Stroud, Ryan Day, we've seen people feel it. You could feel it back in the old days, right? 2015, they lose to Michigan State. You could feel that. You could feel that in that moment that there was like, oh my gosh, the defending national champs have kind of been stumbling through this year. I can't believe they lost. You don't want to get to the point where the burden outweighs the opportunity, where the bad outweighs the good, where the pressure outweighs the spotlight. And it's not there. I don't think it's there. It's not there. But if the idea of losing this game in an 11-1 season becomes is presented as so intolerable that that is now what Ohio State is about. That, man, this program has been great. They have dominated the rivals. They went 17-2 and for 19 years, and they lost two in a row, and it's not fun to play there anymore. If you're not from Ohio, if you don't grow up in it, if you don't have it in your blood, and we'll get to that because you have to have a roster of guys, you have to have a decent number of guys who don't have it in their blood, that you have to teach it to, or you're not going to win. You're not going to win with Ohio guys. You're going to win with some Ohio guys, but you can't win a national title with just Ohio guys. If the bad outweighs the good, why would you come here from California? Why would you come here from Georgia or Texas or Florida or New Jersey? If you could go somewhere else where you can get to the NFL, you can make some NIL money, you have an opportunity to win, and the burden's not as great. Now, let's not act, act like Ohio State is the only place that does this, right? I don't think I, I don't think Alabama fans tolerate it, tolerate losing. I don't think Clemson fans tolerate losing. I don't think Oklahoma fans tolerate losing. I don't think USC fans, if the, you know, whoever wasn't at the beach in California the last several years, that nobody was like, ah, Clay Helton, that's fine. But it's not like Ohio State's bad. Ohio State just lost to Michigan. And I don't mean just. There's no just here. And if you guys don't think we get it, and, and that was expressed, um, certainly coming at it from a different place than somebody who grew up in it every day. But so are a lot of the people who are, are playing in the game. So I do think if the fans go too hard after the people who were part of this loss, after the coaches and after the players who've lost to Michigan in consecutive years, nobody thinks it's okay. But if you make it so intolerable, I think it could have a negative effect. I think it could lessen Ohio State's chances of being excellent. So maybe that's podsplaining. But I, I really do think that because we haven't gone through this before. And so I have, you know, there's a text I got from somebody yelling. And, and I'm here to be yelled at. I said to the texters, people were like, if you were, if you were F-bombing me personally, like I sell, I told someone to, it's not, but we're here for your anger. We're here for, for all that. We understand that. Um, but someone said like back in, back in Woody and you've lived through all of that. 
And that's really important. That's how you build something because somebody experiences something and sticks around and then you you teach the people who weren't there. There are millions of Ohio State fans who weren't around during Woody, but how do they know about Woody? Well, because there are fans who were around doing it and they explain it. And Ohio State explains that tradition. So it's that's vital, vital. You can't lose that. But you also can't, I, I, you can't overdo it if you want. I don't think it's productive to overdo it to the point of telling an 18 or 19 year old kid, well, Woody Hayes would have done this. Cause it just like, it doesn't, they want to, re- they respect it. They, they know about it, but it doesn't resonate when they're down. You can't hit them with the Woody stick <laughs> when they're down. Just like Woody couldn't coach today the way he coached back then. We know that, right? Woody was kicking players in the butt in practice. That's how he did it then. Those were those times. Maybe you think that's how it still should be, but it's not. So there were good and bad back then. There's good and bad now, but it's different. So Woody matters, but you can't do it like Woody. So I don't think you can, I, I, I just wouldn't overdo the Woody stuff, right? It's not okay. No, no fan has said, yeah, like 2000 texts. Nobody was like, you know what? It's fine. I don't know. Maybe I should send that out on a survey. We're sending, we're sending out the survey. Who among you thinks, eh, it's fine. Two consecutive losses to Michigan, no big deal. Answer one is, I set my own house on fire. Answer two, I can't stop throwing up. I feel ill. Answer 96, eh, it's fine. Nobody would vote for that. But my advice, is it advice? My view, you don't have to listen to me. My view is, temper it a little. Whatever your whatever your initial instinct is, maybe dial it back one. So if you're at a 20, maybe make it a 19. If you're at a 10, make it a nine. And we saw that right the day after. We There are people saying, okay, I slept on it. I, I don't think what I thought yesterday. So because um, I do think you don't want to be Texas. You don't want to be so hell-bent on achieving your standard at all costs that you actually inhibit your chances of achieving the standard because you create so much pressure and you get rid of people so quickly and your expectations are so high and you and you 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 demand so much you can, I think you can ask things of players and uh, players especially it's mostly the, the coaches make 9 million dollars they're fine players think you want to ask things of them not demand things of them because they're 19 or 21 I don't know if that made any sense all right, this is my second point. I'm going in reverse order of what I thought I was going to do. That was some context. This one is, do you win because of stability or are you stable because you win? So the thing that we had talked about, again, this is a little bit of the Texas point. I do think you don't want to be, uh, you don't want to churn too much, right? You don't want to um, boot people too quickly because that's a Texas point. But you also don't want to get stale and you don't want to tolerate substandard um, behavior or substandard coaching, substandard recruiting. You don't tolerate that. But I don't think you start booting everybody for one mistake. So that's kind of the same point. I think I accidentally made the Texas point already. So that was the thing I wanted to do. Let's let's do this again. We're going to get to Ryan Day and Jim Dole's play calling because that's really important. But I do just want to note this. Um, I just am looking some stuff up. It's not to make excuses. I don't know what the numbers are before I look them up. 
I will just tell you, I looked up the records of the four, the last four years. So this is since Ryan Day. Ryan Day is 45 and five, but three of that was filling in for Urban in 18. So he's 42 and five since 2019. There are only four programs in the last four years, 2019 and now have fewer than 10 losses. Georgia's 49 and five. Ohio State's 42 and five. Bama's 47 and six. And Clemson's 44 and eight. So Ohio State has the second best winning percentage of the last four years. Now, when Paul Chris got fired, a lot of people looked at the overall record at Wisconsin and said, how could you do this? It's not about only overall records. It's about where you're trending, right? Are you trending up or trending down? Paul Chris was trending down. Ryan Day, from losing zero regular season games in 2019 and 2020, is trending down. He's now lost three regular season games in the last two years. He went from not losing to Michigan to losing to Michigan. That's trending the wrong way. Trends absolutely matter. But that's just a number. In the last in in the time that Ryan Day has been the full time head coach at Ohio State, they have the second best record in the country. Okay, quick break. I'll get my thoughts together. I had ten in a, ten in a row, and then I started at ten, and then I made ten number eight part of number ten, and I screwed it up. Um, I'm I, I am on edge. Maybe maybe this is a whole new. Maybe it's been too easy. Maybe it's been too easy to talk about this team because it was so good, and everybody was generally happy because you had the Michigan win in the bag. And then everything else, not that it's gravy, but the thing that mattered the most was happening. So then, okay, now we go to the next thing. And then when that thing stopped happening, it it just changes the whole aquarium, man. You drop in a different fish and everybody has to react. And the fish you dropped in is Jim Harbaugh beating Ohio State two, uh, two years in a row. All right, quick break. We'll be back after this on Buckeye Talk Rants. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. All right, Doug Maurice back. I'm not giving the text number again. People are people are bailing on the texts. Who who wants to join now? If you're new, I can't believe if you're listening to the pod for the first time um, now. But if you've been around and you want to join the text, that's fine. I'm not going to ask you for money at a time like this. Okay, so I do think that the main thing that people texted about in the 2,000 plus texts was the play calling of Ryan Day and Jim Knowles. It was not about um talent it was not about it was not about the players as much it was certainly more about the the two play callers on this team so let's discuss that because i do think the ryan day play calling discussion is a very very interesting and complicated one i think it happens everywhere a lot of times especially in this day and age a lot of head coaches have gotten their jobs because they were good offensive play callers because people making hiring decisions in the last several years, Ryan Day was part of it, certainly. Lincoln Riley, people wanted offensive minds as their head coaches. That's where the game went for a little bit. Then it turns back a little bit, and now you can look and you see some defensive guys getting hired, obviously. But that's why you get your job. And this is like what every head coach in that situation faces. Well, this is why I got hired. Why would I not do the thing that got me the job? And so in 2019 and 2020, 
I don't know that anybody would argue, right? I mean, like what Ryan Day and Justin Fields did in that first year against a light schedule, admittedly, in 2019. But what they did was remarkable, right? To go undefeated in that regular season with Ryan Ryan Day taking over and then Justin Fields getting here in January and here we go. That's remarkable. Lose to Clemson. And again, they certainly could have won. Also helped by great talent, Jeff Okuda, Chase Young on the defensive side, J.K. Dobbins at running back, obviously helped Justin Fields in 2019. You come back in 2020, it's a goofy year. Ryan Day has to manage COVID. All the head coaches have to manage COVID. It's a whole different thing to deal with. But then Ohio State gets back to the the game they were really wanted to play, which is get Clemson again. They get him in semifinal, and the the general vibe out of that game was Ryan Day broke Brent Venables. Brent Venables absolutely was known as the best defensive coordinator in the country at Clemson at that time. And Ryan Day dialed it up in that game and they got revenge through their offense. They did what they needed to do. And then they got the chance to go take on Bama and Bama was better than them. So nobody in the first two years had an issue with Ryan Day calling plays as a head coach. So what has changed? Well, I do think 2020 was obviously very complicated for a head coach, but I do think it has only gotten more complicated since then. And this is what everybody's talking about for the last two years. You talk about the transfer portal. You talk about name, image, and likeness. You talk about all these sort of these rule changes. You're going to have expanded staffs. The playoff is changing. There's so much stuff happening off the field, and every head coach has said it, including Ryan Day. Yeah, I spend a lot of time on that stuff. So there are many more things that a head coach has to be responsible for. And then you also remember that you are the guy, in some way at least, charged with the health and welfare of 100-plus young men in college. And And the Harry Miller situation brought that to light in a very difficult way. But Harry Miller, having real serious mental health issues, turned to Ryan Day. Ryan Day helped him through that. Harry Miller stopped playing football, but Harry Miller is in a better place now. And Ryan Day as a head coach, I think we all agree, handled that well. Doesn't excuse you for losing to Michigan, but it's just a reminder of all the things that head coach has to deal with. So Ryan Day has to do all that. He also had to hire a new defensive coaching staff last year. Had to hire five new assistants last year, right? Jim Knowles, Perry Eliano, Tim Walton on the defensive side of the ball, Justin Fry on the offensive side of the ball. So four, four new assistants, did all of that. While he's also the primary play caller, this is his offense, he calls the plays. And he's really the quarterback's coach. And so that's that's a reminder of that, right? I mean, Corey Dennis is certainly involved in recruiting, and Corey Dennis is a quarterback coach by title. Todd Fitch is a guy who had coached with Ryan Day at Boston College. He's a former offensive coordinator at Vanderbilt and some other places, has a long resume. He's an analyst for them. When you hear C.J. Stroud talk, he talks a lot about him. He can't do on-field coaching, but he clearly has a big role in helping C.J. Stroud um, prepare from a film standpoint, that kind of thing. But Ryan Day also has a big role in that. So I do think Ryan Day is heavily involved in the quarterbacks, heavily involved in the offensive play calling, and he's the head coach of a sport that is getting more complicated by the minute. And I do think it might still be too much. The way they addressed that a year ago, we had this discussion a year ago, should Ryan Day give up play calling? They very specifically did not do that. And the way they tried to take something off Ryan Day's plate is by hiring a head coach of the defense. I don't know how much Ryan Day thinks about defense. I think it might be almost zero. And he made that very clear. Jim Knowles is the head coach of the defense. He, Because 
last year, right, when there were the problems defensively, he's going in there. Now he's doing more defensive stuff, and it's just too much. So rather than saying, let's take some offensive stuff off his plate, this makes someone else the in-game play caller, they said, let's basically eliminate that side of the ball, right? Culture still matters, still the leader of the team, but but Jim Knowles is making the defensive game plan, and that's that. And I do think that's what the people around the program want. Like, I don't think it's just that Ryan Day wants that. I think it's that that's what that's what the powers that be think is the best way for Ohio State to win because they know Ryan Day got this job because of his play calling. And they also believe in him as a cultural guy, that kind of thing. Is it too much? Maybe. I do think it's harder to be the best offensive coordinator you can be and the best head coach you can be when you are both, which is why is Nick Saban have a play sheet in his hand calling every defensive signal? No. Does Dabo Sweeney have a play sheet in his hand calling every offensive play at Clemson? No. Does Jim Harbaugh call every offensive play at Michigan? No. It's Matt Weiss and Sharon Moore who are doing that. Jim Harbaugh has a Jim Harbaugh offense he wants to run, but he's not doing that. Lincoln Riley still does it, but a lot of the other top coaches, like that's not where they are. And you migrate to that as you get older, right? That's just normal. You start off doing it and then you give it up because it gets to be too much. So this is clearly the Ryan Day offense. I did sit in an offensive meeting couple weeks ago for two and a half hours. There's 10 other guys in that room, but Ryan Day's running that room. And he runs it, as my understanding, he runs it with a with a stronger hand than, for instance, Urban Meyer ran it. Because Urban, it was Urban's offense, but we all know Ryan Day, right? 17 and 18 is offensive coordinator. That's Ryan Day as the offensive coordinator. But we still think about Ryan Day that same way. That wasn't what Urban was doing at that point in his career. That's not what he was doing. That's why he brought in Ryan Day. That's why he leaned on Dan Mullen at Florida, right? He had those guys. This is my offense, but you call it on Saturday. They draw it all up during the week. They pick the concepts they want. They pick everything for short yardage and third down and red zone and everything else they want to do. All the run play, all the concepts are there every week. And they choose which concepts are going to work against which defenses. They are very specific about it. They have a chart where this is the defense, defensive style of this opponent plays. And here's all the concepts that we have. Which concepts work against the style of defense, the two or three styles of defense that this opponent's going to play? And they have this all charted. And then they pick the concepts they want to work out of that. But Ryan Day's heavily involved, man. Ryan Day's in that room. He's got a green laser pointer. He's pointing out which hole a running back is supposed to hit. He is very specifically involved. Every 10 other people in the room, all involved. But Ryan Day runs that meeting. Ryan Day runs that show offensively, very specifically, very clearly, for hours and hours and hours. I think, to my understanding, Urban was in that room, but he wasn't running it quite that same way, right? So it's mental energy, it's time, it's it's the physical where you where your body is, right? You're in that room with the offensive coaching staff a lot. So could you change that? Listen, they have Kevin Wilson there ready to do it. Kevin Wilson made his bones as an offensive coordinator. That's how he became the head coach in Indiana because of what he did as an offensive play caller. Kevin Wilson could call it tomorrow. Brian Hartline, getting more involved with that. When you sit in that room, Tony Alford, Justin Fry, Kevin Wilson, they're doing a lot of the run game stuff. Brian Hartline, Ryan Day, they're handling most of the pass game stuff. So could you do that? You could. Should they do that? I think it's a conversation you have to have. I think you have to think about the hours in Ryan Day's week and how do you apply that. It is a difficult thing to give up. He might be too early in his career, might be too young to do it, but I think you have to think about it. 
And again, they would tell you, listen, we 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 decide on this collaboratively with Ryan Day as the head at the, the head of the snake during the week. So by the time we get to Saturday, right, it's we know these are the three short yardage plays we like, and then just like the guy with the play sheet in his hand has to pick the one. But you all talked about, well, if they're given this look, try this. If they're given this look, try this. If this is working, try this. But they're not looking at 14 different options on third and goal from the three. They're looking at like the three or four things that they like the best when they dial it up, right, on Sunday and Monday by the time they get to Tuesday practice. And I'm telling you, this is a story that like I was researching and working on. I'm giving some of, some of it to you now, right? By Tuesday practice, they're working on the plays they're going to run in the game because you can't run them in the game if you don't run them in practice. So on Sunday and Monday, you decide they have every inch of the four walls in the offensive meeting room are covered with information about plays. There's a chart where they have, these are the concepts that we're using. These are new for this week. Not new to the, not new to the team, but new, like we didn't use them last week. We're, we're sliding them in. They were always there, but we're putting them in the inbox for this week. But they, they, they want the, the stuff that works best. And so it's about 70 plays you take into a game, right? And they're all, it's all situational. Could Kevin Wilson do it? He could. They have the guy here to do it. So Ryan Day has to think about that. because, And, and then you have to think about, like, well, why am I doing it? What am I getting out of it? Are you getting culture out of it? Are you getting connection with the entire staff? That you're getting more connected to the defensive side of the ball? Are you getting somehow more connected to all your players? Are you setting a better agenda for the entire operation from top to bottom, from recruiting to strength and conditioning to offense, to defense, to special teams. Are you getting all those kind of things out of less time in the offensive meeting room? Less time on the sideline on Saturday. Are you getting more, I'm going to go over and stare JT Tuimoloau in the face and say, let's go. Or I'm going to I'm gonna go over and get with Ronnie Hickman. Or I'm going to go over and I'm going to get with Josh Fryer, right? Whatever. Because I don't have to think about Because sometimes you do watch Ryan Day and like, after an offensive series, he'll kind of walk a little bit, you know, and he's not super, he's not right in there with the, not that most head coaches are, but what would you get out of it? So I do think it's worth a discussion because right now, is he as good of a play caller as he was in 2019? I think maybe not. And there's the science in the yard. I think they're really good at the science. Like the, it's like a lab in there, man. Like they're running the experiments. Like the science is good, but then you get to the yard on Saturday and the feel and all that kind of thing, but you have more on your plate. So Ryan Day, when he's dialing up in 17 and 18, he's got one thing to think about as the offensive coordinator. Then 19, he's still rolling with that, and everything's going great, and you're playing Florida, Atlantic, and Cincinnati, right? And everything's going great, and like you go blow out Michigan again, and the world is wonderful. And you're not thinking about NIL and the transfer portal as much and that kind of thing. So I'm still going through the game. I do think there were just moments where – you know, you, you know, you look at the, the third down play before they kicked the field goal in the first half. So they, they were, they had seven, they were up seven, three, then they kicked the field goal to up 10, three, because on third and eight, uh, Michigan drops eight and they only have three guys in the route. So Michigan's covering three guys with eight. They got two on Marvin. They have, uh, I think two on Emeka. They have like a safety floating, a linebacker floating and one on Julian and there's nowhere to go. And so CJ tries to hit a Mecca, but it just it's not there. And I think they got in that moment, right? Jesse Minner drops eight. Ryan Day Max protects. There's only three guys in the route. And it's hard for any quarterback when it's three on eight. 
in the red zone. And Kevin Wilson always talks about trying to throw it in the red zone. They set up a picket fence, right? Like along the goal line. It's like bang, 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 bang. You can have five guys playing zone across. So they just had, a, it was crowded and there was nowhere to throw. So uh, you convert that third and eight. You're up, you get 14 instead of a 10. That's a game changer. There was a play. And again, I, I want to do, maybe it's not worth a pod, but like they ran that little toss on third and three from midfield. And we talked about some of this on, on after the game. They ran that little toss on third and three. You go back and watch. Michigan looks like in man there, single coverage on all the receivers. And it's just, I'm a little surprised that like they didn't check it to a little slant to Marvin there on third and three, because I thought it felt like it was there. Joel Cloud even like circled it in the moment. Like, oh, look, they're in man. Here you go. But they had a little, like that little toss left and it, it on its own, that little toss left. It, it feels like, why, why is that what you're doing there? But especially given the look they got, it felt like the Marvin slant against Penn State might have been there for the taking with man coverage, and it didn't look like there's going to be a lot of safety help. So you think about that one, right? And there are just situations like that where I do think in the moment, you could see times where, like, I, I don't think it was like incompetence down after down after down, but on some money plays, you could see where I, I thought the, the the throw to, to Cade Stover at the end when they kicked the field goal um, to go down eight, right, when they were down 11, the pass to Cade Stover, I think they think they're getting man, and instead it's zone, and Sandra still runs with them, and all of a sudden, you know, you kind of got beat there. I just think they got beat on some play calls in the moment. So would that not have happened if it was Kevin Wilson calling it? I don't know, but I do think if you're if you have concerns about the way the game was called offensively on Saturday, I think they're legitimate. Now you go through all the whole season, like all the complaints of the whole season. Um, I do think. The uncertainty in the run game got to Ryan Day and got in his head to some degree. And not knowing which back you were going to have, not knowing how healthy they were, not knowing how much you could rely on them. And by the end, you're handing it to a a guy you thought was going to be a linebacker here in the Michigan game. It's either him or a freshman. We still, I don't, I still don't know why they didn't play Dallin Hayden more. But it's not J.K. Dobbins in 2019. And like they thought they had that in Travion. And with a healthy Travion, maybe you do. Maybe. Now, that's a high bar. That's a high bar. And I do think Travion had some issues with his vision this year. But also that may be attributed because as he tweeted after the game, he's dealing with ligaments and a broken bone in his foot. And clearly he wasn't himself. So could he be that next year? One completely healthy? Absolutely. Could be. But I do think it affected how Ryan Day looked at the whole offensive thing. Because I do think he lost some faith in the run game, as we all did, because you didn't know who it was going to be and how healthy they were going to be and what it was going to look like. And and whether that guy who had not been getting in a season-long rhythm, who maybe wasn't, whether it was an ankle or a foot or whatever, maybe wasn't going to put his ground his foot in the ground and make a cut inside to hit the inside hole, I think it affects how you call a game. So I do think that happened. And, you know, I had some people after the game say, hey, Doug, see, this is why you need to be able to run the ball. I'm not anti-running the ball. I was anti-running the ball with this team, with this situation. Give me J.K. Dobbins. My gosh, 2019, he ran for 2,000 yards. I'm not anti-J.K. Dobbins. I'm not anti-Ezekiel Elliott. If you have a healthy workhorse back or you've got a a two-man thing that's working, right? That wasn't the case this year. So given that, throw to win. Now, I don't think they lost the game because they couldn't run it. But there was an explosion in the run game. There wasn't a game breaker in the run game. And I still think you could go back and watch. And again, I don't know if we'll do it or not. I mean, I'm going to watch it. I don't know if it's worth talking about all the way through. We'll have to ask you guys if you want that as a pod. You can find plays. Even Mayan had a play on the outside where I thought he could have maybe, again, a healthy back breaks it for 20. He gets seven. It's not his fault. He's not himself. 
So I do think that got in Ryan Day's head and it affected how he called the, the game on Saturday. Is that an excuse? No, it's not an excuse. You got to call a better game. You're the $9 million a year head coach. Call a better game. You're a play caller. But I think it's real. And I do think the idea of, hey, you've got to run the ball. Someone said, hey, the last two years, Michigan is outgaining Ohio State on the ground in the second half, this to this. And I would say Ohio State threw the ball for like 700 yards in 18 and 19 when they were dropping bombs on Michigan. Everybody loved that. Like I, I don't think, I don't think that has to be it. But even if you say you've got to run the ball, like I just, I, I didn't think they were going to do it this year with this situation. So injuries are part of that. They were down, you know. They thought they had. Nobody has eight scholarship running backs. So you think you have four, like bang, 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 all lined up. And then you lose number three before the season, number one and number two battle various injuries all year. And then your fourth guy's a true freshman. That's just a reality, right? And so I, I don't think in the end, the effect was they couldn't run it against Michigan and that's why they lost. But I do think it had an effect on the year long approach offensively, which showed up in some of the play calls on Saturday. And some of you say they ran it too much. Some of you say they didn't run it enough. Some of you say, why do they keep trying to run it? Some of you say, why didn't they run it more? And that's the whole thing. Which one was it? Did they not run it enough or did they run it too much on Saturday? Right? On the little third and three toss at midfield, it's like, well, that feels like too much. But they also got a short yardage early on in the run game, right? So that's the Ryan Day side of things. It's a discussion. I think it has to be a discussion. I don't think you yank the play card out of his hand as, as Gene Smith and say, that's it. But I think you have to think about how the head coach, coach uses his resources. And I think that matters. Jim Knowles. Jim Knowles, riverboat gambler, right? This is like this, this thing now. Like we, We've talked about the, the risk I thought he took on the first touchdown that I didn't think was the right thing in the moment. Um, but I do think the whole thing with the previous staff was that it was too static that there wasn't enough scheme, that there wasn't enough disguise, right? That there wasn't enough to throw off an opposing quarterback. And so that's what Jim Knowles came here to do. Jim Knowles didn't come here to play straight up four-man pass rush, cover one, cover three, let's go, and that's it, right? We want that. We, you guys, Ryan Day, Gene Smith, everybody, they wanted a schemer. So a schemer's going to scheme. So I do think, like, there's all a balance to that. But if did he over scheme? Did he and did he not adjust? You could see Michigan a lot with two deep safeties, right? They kept a lot in front of them, and and you say, how come Ohio State didn't take those same shots that Michigan did? Well, part of it's because Michigan had like a two deep safety look, I think, a lot, and they dropped eight a lot, and it's just hard to run by somebody um, if you're playing zone and dropping a safety deep, and it's like, okay, well, there's somebody there, like it's. It's harder to hit that shot. And Ohio State did not have as much deep help, right? The, the touchdown where Cam Martinez got beat, there's not a safety sitting there in the middle of the field to help there. So, you know, he should have adjusted to that. And, and I think that's reasonable. But also you understand of like you're, you, you didn't bring in a guy to just play cover two and sit there and hope someone gets to the passer. So does that mean Jim Knowles is out? No, no, no. Does that Jim mean Jim Knowles was the wrong hire? No, I don't think anyone thinks that. I don't think that. Maybe you think that. I don't think that. Does Jim Knowles need to get back in the lab and make some adjustments for Michigan next year? Yes. Does Jim Knowles need to call it better against Michigan next year? Yes. 
does Jim Knowles need to get a better feel with this team, with what it has, the corners and the pass rush that it has, for when he takes risks and when he doesn't in big games? Yes. Yes. So I do think, again, I was sort of saying after the game, is it more internal? Because you look at the personnel, and we're going to get into the personnel more a little bit. Is it more internal? Because the external is they they had it. And a lot of you said the external thing is the play calling on both sides. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. So they didn't call their best game. They are accountable for that. I think they both know that. We will continue to talk about the specific offensive play calling in that game, how it can be fixed, and who should do the fixing. But that's where I am now. And I do think that's the main thing that I got from you guys. Just a lot of frustration, more offensively than defensively, a lot of frustration with the play calling. And someone compared it to Kevin Stefanski. I've been hard on Kevin Stefanski with the Browns this year because, again, head coach that sometimes could feel like his head is buried in the play sheet, and they come out. The Browns scored a first-drive touchdown for the sixth time this year against Tampa on Sunday, and it was the first time they won the game. They had been 0-5 when scoring first-drive touchdowns. The way Ohio State looked on that first drive was great, and they got like the touchdown. There were a couple things that didn't work, but then the touchdown did work because they got the coverage they wanted, and they blocked it up, and they got Abuka on a crosser in man coverage, which is how Ryan Day beat Don Brown back in the day, right? It's like, we're just going to run crossers against man, and our guy's faster than your guy. And that worked. It worked perfectly. And then I don't know that they got that look again. I think they tried some similar stuff down in the red zone. I don't know that they got that same look again. But it worked great on the first drive. So sometimes it's like, well, if it works great on the first drive and then it doesn't after that, it's almost an indictment. It's like, well, okay, when you have all week to come up with things. And I don't think Ryan scripts it necessarily, but you come up with a plan and then it works great. And then once the adjustments start, then you don't look as good. It's like, that's not great. It's not like, hey, congratulations on the first touchdown. It's like, oh, I get it. Like I, I always say, it, football's a pop quiz. It's not a test necessarily you get to study for all week. You get to study in the beginning, but then it's a pop quiz after that. You got to be ready for the pop quizzes. So um, I do think that was a decent comparison. And like I've indicted Stefanski for that. So I do think that's not a great look for Ryan Day that it looked so good early and then it, it, it didn't look as good later. Um, but there's also, you know, there's some things within that. I, I don't think it was down after down after down. It was a weird third down here. It was a weird first down there that got him behind the sticks, that kind of thing when you talk about the play calling. So um, I did get that from you guys. I didn't pull them, but I, I did get that from you guys. One of the things that came up is the idea of equal talent games. And this is a thing that takes me back to Jim Trestle because this was when Jim Trestle was dominating a down Big Ten. And again, I wasn't around in 02. But once I got here in 05, he's dominating a down Big Ten and then he's getting to the equal talent games and he's losing to Florida in 06. And he's losing to LSU in 07. And he's losing to USC in Texas in 08. And he's losing to USC again in 09. It's like, great, you're beating you know, down Michigan and not great Penn State. And I was actually pretty good back then. But like you're beating all, you know, that was like sort of before the rise of D'Antonio. You're beating all these people, beating Michigan State. But like, who cares? When you get the equal talent games, you can't win. Like, what are you doing? That was a conversation that, what are you doing to get Ohio State over the top in equal talent games? So this is, I just did the numbers. This is just one point in this discussion. The last four years, I went to oddshark.com. I know Nathan uses that a lot. And I looked at all games 
in which Ohio State and several other top teams where the line was seven points or less. So whether you were favored by seven, an underdog by seven, it's a one-score game by Vegas. It's just, I'm trying to get some, just some way for a comparison of equal talent games. Now, the thing is, if you're not perceived as as good, you have more equal talent games. Because I did Michigan, and Michigan has games in there where Michigan's playing Iowa, and it's a one-score game on the line. And Ohio State playing Iowa, that would not be a one-score game. So, But I just this is just the numbers, and we can have a deeper discussion about this later. Since 2019, games where the pre, pre-game line was seven points or fewer either way, Ohio State is two and two. Michigan is nine and five. So think about that. Michigan's played 14 games like that. Ohio State's played four, nine and five. But again, that's, that's some Big Ten games for Michigan where it's like, well, they weren't perceived as good. So then their, their line was lower. But the, the, the record's the record, nine and five. Clemson, seven and six, right? Lincoln Riley, this, now this is both at Oklahoma and then USC this year, eight and three, Lincoln Riley. Georgia, the last four years. Five and four. Alabama, the last four years, games where the, the line is seven points or fewer, two and three. So Ohio State has not played that many of them. And I just did this, Bama losses and Ohio State losses, these four years. Ohio State lost as a two and a half point underdog to Clemson in 19 and lost as a nine and a half point underdog to Bama in the 20 national title game. They also lost to Oregon as a 14.5-point favorite, lost to Michigan as a 6.5-point favorite, lost to Michigan as a 9-point favorite. Alabama, 2019, lost to LSU as a 5-point favorite, then lost to Auburn as a 3.5-point favorite. Then last year, lost to Texas A&M as an 18.5-point favorite, lost to Georgia as a 3-point underdog in the national title game. This year, lost to Tennessee as a 9-point favorite and lost to LSU as a 13.5-point favorite. So... Six losses for Bama, five for Ohio State in the last four years. Equal talent, right? Sometimes it's like, hey, how come you don't win all your equal talent games? And it's like, well, because they're equal talent games. So I just wanted the context of that. Nine and five for Michigan is pretty good. Eight and three for Lincoln Riley is pretty stinking good, right? Everybody else is kind of similar. Georgia five and four, Clemson seven and six, Bama two and three, Ohio State two and two. So that is the that was the Jim Trestle discussion, among other things. The Jim Tressel discussion back there, back then. What do you do in equal talent games? What are you doing to get them over the top? Because we understand it's like, hey, Ohio State has better players than everybody in the Big Ten. Of course you win those games, including Michigan, right? Not that you ever took it for granted. Well, maybe you did. But whatever it was, you knew Ohio State had better players than Michigan, but then Tressel still beat Michigan. Great. But then what about everybody else? And people were hot, man. They were hot. People were not happy. I don't know. You guys were around. I don't. How would you describe how people felt after they lost to Florida and LSU in back-to-back years? And lost to USC and Texas in 08 and USC again in 09. Like, I didn't, not thrilled. So that will take us to that I do think, this is my third point now, but it has my fifth point. It was third on the list. It's fifth in reality. Uh, Ryan Day is, a, is the opposite of Jim Trestle in law right now, right? So the thing about Ryan Day is that, and this is the discussion, and I think it's going to, this is going to change, I think. I asked Ryan Day this year. You're like trying to be two teams. It's the it's the thing I've said it a million times. It's the king of the north thing. You've got to maybe have one style to win in the Big Ten and make sure you take care of your own backyard and then another style to go out into the world. And I do think Ryan Day style, throwing to win, right? 
fits better out in the world than it does in the Big Ten. But you still have better players, so you're winning in the Big Ten anyway. Trestle style, actually, like again, 0-2 is like a borderline miracle, right? So much credit to everybody involved, obviously. But my goodness, they played some close games in 0-2 and escaped because they they did what they had to do in the moment, which is all that matters. And then against Miami, they played maybe the greatest game in Ohio State history. So Day, I think, built better for the national scene, now has lost two to Michigan. Trestle built better for the Big Ten after, after Miami was held to account for failures on the national scene. So I do think when Ryan Day took over, and again, I how many conversations, I mean, I always tell a story. A lot of people wanted Jim Trestle to hand over play calling duties because they thought the offense was boring. And you would have dreamed of somebody like Ryan Day. And Trestle said, what am I going to do? Sit around and eat bonbons if he's not involved in the offense. But that's what people wanted as they were beating Michigan every year. That's what a lot of people wanted. That was a discussion point. So the idea that Ohio State, that Ryan Day came in in a world where there was a talent gap with Michigan and an on-field dominance that he was part of in 17 and 18. It's not like he came in fresh and was only taking over what somebody else did. He was important in what they did in 17 and 18 after the offense in 16 wasn't good enough. That's what he was brought here to do. And he was celebrated for the way that they handled themselves offensively. And then they took care of business in 17 and 18 and 19 against Michigan. So to say in that moment, okay, how are we going about this? Well, I can't, I was brought here by urban because we weren't throwing the ball well enough. That's why I came here. That's what urban said in 16. We got to throw it better. He, Ryan Day had R- R- JT Barrett out there throwing it like like a mamma jam in 17. And then all the crossers and the mesh routes in 18 with Dwayne, and away we go. That's why he came here, because Ohio State wasn't throwing it well enough. So Ryan Day sees that, and they do that. And then that's beating most teams, and it's beating Michigan. And it's what they think they need, because they got shut up by Clemson 31-0, the last game they played without Ryan Day. That was their lit- litmus test. Oh, This thing barely beat Michigan in double overtime because that was a good Michigan team in 16. They toughed it out. The spot could have lost, but they didn't. They toughed it out. But against Clemson, it wasn't close. So we, as a program, need to be a team that can compete on the national scene. That's the focus. Now, is it the priority? No, because Michigan's still the priority, but it's the focus because Michigan, you're handling. So that's what Ryan Day comes into. And that is the focus. All right, we got to be that. And now Michigan gets better. And Ryan Day, as Michigan improves, I would say early, it's one of those things. I guess I'm not going to portray anything that anyone takes Michigan for granted. But Ohio State was dominating the rivalry. There was a talent gap. There was perhaps coaching incompetence at Michigan. It's like nobody was worried about it. This is good enough. What we're doing is good enough to beat Michigan. Then what? This is good enough. There's proof it's good enough because it's happened every year. It's good enough. What we're doing works. Then what? Now it's not good enough. So Ryan Day, I think, has lived in two worlds. And I think maybe you're done living in two worlds. And I understood the idea of living in two worlds still this year. Because Michigan, again, blip versus trend. 
There are things you could point to last year. This is like, okay, now this is a thing. So I think maybe it doesn't mean that Ohio State changes its identity. And it doesn't mean Ohio State stops throwing it. But I do think, like, you don't live in two worlds anymore. And if I ask Ryan Day next year, Ryan, it feels like you have to live in two worlds. You have one style of play to win the Big Ten and another style of play to win nationally. And this year he said yes to that. I think maybe the next next year the answer to that should be no. We play one way, and that is to win the Big Ten and beat our rival. That's how we play. That's how we practice. That's what we do. That's what we think about. If, when we beat our rival and we win the Big Ten, then we'll worry about that then. Then we'll worry about that then. And then if you get back into Trestle World, all right, well, how come you're not beating the SEC on the national scene? Well, because we're built to beat Michigan and win the Big Ten. I think that might be a, a step you have to take. So I think beginning of Ryan Day tenure, I think it was reasonable. I think it was demanded. It wasn't even reasonable. It's like they didn't bring him here in 2017 to beat Michigan because they were beating Michigan. They came, they brought him in to create an offense that could score on Clemson because Deshaun Watson was going to do his thing. And out in the world, those teams were going to do their things. So that's what he was brought here to do. And now I think it's transitioned. And now I think maybe he's back in Trestle world. It's all about Michigan. Because I think there's like the emphasis, there's like the, we hate them. There's the, the things you do during the week and the songs you play and the speeches you give and that kind of thing. But there's also like the structure of the program. And for anybody listening to this screaming at your phone saying that's how it always should have been, they were 17 and two. And nobody was giving them a pass for losing 31 nothing to Clemson. I don't remember the overriding sentiment of the Ohio State fan base after a 31 nothing loss to Clemson being, well, at least we beat Michigan. That's all that matters, right? It's easy. Like sometimes it's like it's all that matters when you lose, but when you win, it's the thing that matters most, but other things also matter. So nobody was happy with 31 nothing. So something had to change. So I, I do think like if that affected Ryan Day's lens, you understand why. But maybe it's changed now. So I think like back to Trestle, like that's it. Because when Trestle got here, was anyone asking Trestle, hey, do you think you can win a national title? It's like, what are you talking about? They haven't won a national title at Ohio State in three decades. They were 2-10-1 against Michigan. Let's make the main thing the main thing. Let's not act like when Ryan Day got here, the number one problem with the program. Number one problem. That's different than priority. When he got here, the number one problem wasn't beating Michigan, because they were. When Jim Trestle got here, the number one problem was beating Michigan. When Urban Meyer got here, the number one problem was raising the level of talent. And he did that. Now he beat Michigan along the way. And Tress, while making while beating Michigan, it's a I how do you explain 2002? He came here to beat Michigan and he won a national title in year two. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So I think that's where it is. I think it's back. I don't think it's, too, I don't, I don't think Ryan Day has feet in two different worlds anymore. It's back to one world. It's win the Big Ten and beat Michigan and anything after that, we worry about that later. I do think we've gotten to that point. Another quick break. We'll come back and talk about more on Buckeye Talk. I, rants, I'm worried I'm annoying you. Buckeye Talk. All right, we're back on Buckeye Talk. 
Let's talk about Ohio players. So this is something I, I've always said this, right? I'm I'm the guy who's like, hey, save some spots in the class for some late bloom in Ohio guys. Hey, make sure you get some guys from Ohio who, if they don't turn into starters and they're second teamers and special teamers, aren't going to transfer, are going to love being a Buckeye, are going to understand what it means. I think that's important. I mean, I, I think maybe people have gotten tired of me saying that. So I absolutely believe that. I absolutely believe that, that you want, I don't even know if it's an Ohio core anymore, but you certainly want an Ohio section, right? You you want you want that part of it. You want guys, you want some section of the roster, and I don't think you have to put a percent on it, but I do think in the end you, it's it's worth it for the health of the overall roster to maybe be slightly lower in the recruiting rankings and and just take a couple guys here or there um, who were slightly lower rated, but were an Ohio guy over like another national guy. So I, I think I've been pretty consistent on that, but some texts now, not enough Ohio guys, not enough Ohio guys, get more Ohio guys. You're not going to win a national title with only Ohio guys. So in 2002, Jim Tressel got the class, right? That's his big class of guys who sort of formed the backbone of like the 05 and 06 teams. And there were 20 Ohio players in the top 400 nationally back then. Ohio State got 14 of them. And you could do that. That was still when you could do that. Um, 20 years later in 2022, there were 14. That was 20 Ohio players in the top 400 nationally. 2022, there were 14 Ohio players in the top 400 nationally. Um, and Ohio State got five of them. And it's not that they couldn't get them, but it's like that's not – they're not taking like the 12th best Ohio guy who's ranked like 311. Like, that's just not what Ohio State's taking anymore. And that's urban. And that's what everybody wanted. Because at the end of Tress, people thought you need a talent lift. And everybody celebrated that when Urban started doing it. And everybody celebrated when Ryan Day and Mark Pantone kept the Ohio State recruiting go- going to a great degree uh, and maintaining top three, top five classes. So you you can't put Ohio focus first. Can you have... Can you have that in your head? We want to make sure we have enough Ohio guys. Yeah, absolutely. So since 2014, those eight years, there have been 39, not including this year because it's coming out this week, all Big Ten teams. But in the eight years from 2014 to last year, there were 39 different players, not 39 different instances because a bunch of guys made it multiple times, but 39 different players for the Buckeyes who made first team all Big Ten. I'll give you five seconds to guess how many were from Ohio and how many were not. 12 from Ohio, 27 not from Ohio. So that's just the reality. And again, you know, Chase Young and Ezekiel Elliott and Vaughn Bell and Raekwon McMillan and the Bosa brothers and everybody else, Justin Fields, right? Dwayne Haskins. That's just the reality. So if, if you're, Big point is there's not enough Ohio guys that care about this. I don't know that you would be happy with the roster that is super Ohio-y because by the end of Trestle, people weren't happy with that. So find the right balance, right? The 12 Ohio guys who were first team all Big Ten since 14. Pat Alfine, Duran Grant, Taylor Decker, Josh Perry, Billy Price, uh, Marshawn Lattimore, Denzel Ward, Paris Campbell, Draymond Jones, Malik Harrison, Josh Myers, and Thayer Munford. 
So go find those guys. Absolutely. And they do. They keep those guys in state, right? Justin Frylock down the three in state offensive linemen when they got here, right? They get they get those guys. CJ Hicks, Sonny Styles, who we're both gonna play next year. I hope CJ Hicks is okay after banging his knee in that game. I don't I don't have any information on that. So if that just if that if you're hitting that point, I just I agree with it to have the, have enough Ohio guys, but if if you and I get some of these, like hey, these guys, you know, CJ Stroud's from California and Marvin Harrison's from Philadelphia and Emeka Buka's from Washington and and like all these guys, like um, yeah, right. That's, that's how you win. <laughs> Denzel Burke's from Arizona and Steel Chambers is from Florida and JT Tuimolowa's from Washington and yeah, I know. Make sure you get Jack Sawyer. Make sure you get Zach Harrison. Right, Ronnie Hickman's from New Jersey, and you need him. Lathan Ransom's from Arizona too. You need him. So Mike Hill, get him. They did. Mike Hall, sorry, not Mike Hill. So anyway, uh, just want to make that point about Ohio players. Just don't go too far with it. Well, like a lot of this stuff, just don't go too far. A lot of I mean, everybody, like I think, is on the right track with a lot of things. It's just the difference of you know, do you do you want to make sure that they maintain the right balance of Ohio guys versus you know. All these national guys don't care about the game. Stop getting so many of them. It's like, well, okay. Recruiting in general. Someone asked a question about like, hey, just like we, we lean back too much on recruiting rankings and that they've been top heavy on receivers and quarterbacks and that throws off the recruiting rankings. And like, yeah, no, we, we've, we've talked about that. So I looked at the, the 12 guys on each side of the ball in the Michigan game who played the most, 20 snaps or more. Offensively, those 12 guys, Five of them were top 50 national players. Six of them were the top 100. And then eight of the 12 were top 200 national players. The four who were not, Dewan Jones, who's a diamond in the rough in the thousands, who has absolutely worked out. You'd take 100 times out of 100. Josh Fryer, who played most of the game at right guard, who was sort of in that group when they got a bunch of Ohio guys in one of the years of stud a couple years ago. You know, got four or five Midwest, lower-rated Midwest linemen because they'd missed on some guys. And Fryer's the one who was hit the most. The other guys kind of haven't worked out, which is not a shock, and that's why Stud's not here anymore. But Fryer was only playing because Matt Jones was hurt. Matt Jones is a top 100 national recruit. So he'd make it 9 of the 12 if Matt Jones had been healthy. And then the other two guys are the running backs, Chip Trainum and Mayan Williams. And again, you had a top 100 national recruit. You had a five-star recruit in Travion, who you think was going to be that guy. So if they're healthy, it's basically everybody, other than Dewan, is a top 200 national guy. So, yes, they're top-heavy on receivers and quarterbacks, but Paris Johnson, Donovan Jackson, Luke Whipler, Matt Jones, all very highly rated recruits. Cade Stover, a very highly rated recruit. Uh, Trayvon Henderson, a very highly rated recruit. So um, I don't think that the talent was an issue on the offensive side of the ball when healthy, but when you get down to who you were giving the ball to in the end, I did think that mattered. But that's not really a recruiting thing. It's a health thing. Defensively, 12 guys who played the most. Four top 50 guys, JT Tuimolowau, Zach Harrison, Teron Vincent, uh, and J.K. Johnson, because Jack Sawyer actually didn't play that much against Michigan. That also, that's it's four top 100 guys. There's nobody else who was like between 51 and 100. And then seven guys in the top 200 You'd add to that, Lathan Ransom was 167, Ronnie Hickman was 115, and uh, Denzel Burke was 199. 
So that means you're playing five guys who are lower rated recruits than that. Tommy Eichenberg was in the 300s. I thought Tommy Eichenberg on my all Big Ten ballot. I, I thought he was the second best linebacker in the Big Ten this year. I think the three best linebackers. It's hard. It's Wisconsin. They put Nick Herbing on as a as a linebacker. He's like an edge guy. But if you count him as a linebacker, then I think Jack Campbell. I think was the best, probably the best defensive player in the Big Ten this year. He was our preseason defensive player of the year there in the Big Ten, and and I think he should win the postseason award for that. But I think Eichenberg was the second best linebacker. So like you'd take him a hundred times out of a hundred the way he played this year. Uh, Tanner McAllister's right, a transfer guy that helped steady things. You know, he was a solid player this year. Was he spectacular? No, but also you saw like when he wasn't in the game and Cam Martinez, right? You, they missed him. So you'd take Tanner McAllister. Ty Hamilton, lower rated guy, guy at defensive tackle, solid rotational guy. Cam Brown, cornerback, you know, liked him. Is he is he Denzel Ward, Marshawn Lattimore, Garyon Conley, Bradley Roby, highest level, Jeff Okuda of all Ohio State corners? No. And I do think we saw that show up. Um, so... Overall, defensively, like out of the top 12, four top 50 guys and seven top 200 guys, I think it can be better. And I think we know that, right? So they hit a recruiting lull with the corners while Kerry Combs was gone. And then you thought Jordan Hancock and J.K. Johnson as second-year guys were maybe going to fix that this year. I think J.K. Johnson had an up-and-down year, I think it's fair to say. And Jordan Hancock, again, the injuries all year, and then he played four snaps of special teams. On Saturday, but according to PFF, didn't play a defensive snap. So where we went from like, hey, Jordan Hancock is back and that's going to like settle down the corners and be a big deal to like he doesn't play against Michigan. I'm, I'm not sure what happened there, but he was healthy enough to play special teams. So those were two big time recruits that you that people really thought were going to make a difference this year. And then it kind of, you know, they weren't difference makers for various reasons at corner and you, they need better corners. They need I think better corner talent coming in. And I think they need better development from Tim Walton. I do think the idea of Tim Walton, what did he do to develop these guys? Did any of the corners have their best year? Did any of the corners, you know, Cam Brown, I think when he came back healthy, played pretty well a couple of weeks ago, Ryan Day said that. I think they were happy, but like, did, did the corners max out their talent this year? I think injuries were certainly a part of that, but no. So that's an issue. Uh, linebacker, like, Al Washington didn't ever really hit home runs in recruiting, and I think that has shown up. Um, Jim Knowles has to go out and do that. C.J. Hicks, if he's healthy, is, I think is going to play next year, and that'll be good, and that'll be really important. Uh, at safety, I think Lathan and Ronnie Hickman are pretty darn good players. I thought Ronnie Hickman, I voted first team all Big Ten. I think he's still just a glue guy, had the pass interference. I think Ronnie Hickman's a really good football player, was a top 150 national recruit. He's good. And Lathan, I think they really like athletically and made some big time plays and also had, you know, had a couple rough mistakes uh, against Michigan. I, I do think we all think Lathan Ransom's a good player. So, like, from a talent standpoint, is that, are they Malik Hooker? No. So, I do think they need better talent at corner. I do think they need some better raw talent at linebacker. In the end, you're playing Tommy Eichenberg and Steel Chambers. Again, that's Ron, is that Ryan Shazier or AJ Hawk? No, it's not. And AJ Hawk was a low rate recruit. I know that. Is it Raekwon McMillan? No, it's not. So I think they need to they need to get better there. And Sonny Styles is going to raise the level of play at safety too, athletically. And I just think instinctually, I think he's a smart guy. I think he's going to help them next year. Defensive line, I don't know what more you could ask when you have three five-star defensive ends who are the defensive ends that play. And then I thought Teron Vincent and Ty Hamilton as run stoppers and Mike Hall and Tyleek Williams as guys who got after the quarterback a little bit. 
I think that was a pretty good mix at defensive tackle. You know, is it Cam Hayward? No. Is it Chase Young and the Bosa brothers? No. But if Jack Sawyer and JT Tuimolo are five-star recruits, I mean, Bosa's don't grow on trees. I, I don't I don't know what else you could do from a, from a talent standpoint there. So, and Larry Johnson has been as good as it gets. He's been around for a long time. We don't know what the future holds. Um, but I do think in the end, I think the guys who were here, you have to give them credit for playing well. And I think Eichenberg obviously played well all year. Ronnie Hickman played well. Lathan Ransom really played well in the second half of the year. The corners were a problem all year. So are there recruiting problems at Ohio State? I don't know if it's problems, but they've got to get some stuff going at a couple spots. And they are, when you just do the raw rankings and they're top three, top five, whatever, right? Competing for number one. A lot of that is on quarterback and receiver. And they have a bunch of highly rated quarterbacks who didn't play this year because you only play one quarterback. So, but also go find a team without a highly rated quarterback and see how happy you are about all the offensive linemen they have. Ask Wisconsin. How many great offensive linemen you have if you can't get a quarterback who can play? So... Um, the recruiting standpoint, I, I do think uh, we're not on alert for it, but yeah, they, they, I think defensively, especially, and we've only talked about the offensive tackles for next year on 50 different podcasts. So I do think it's, um, I do think it's worth keeping in mind, but I don't think it's like a huge failing of talent, but I do think some of the, a couple of the defensive dips in recruiting still showed up. All right. So let's wrap up with this. And I do just think it's a reminder Someone here, let me read one text. I read them all. Thank you for sending them. Thank you for sending them. From the 336, I was a 10 out of 10 on the hot seat question about Ryan Day after the game. Now I'm at a one. It's amazing what 24 hours can do for you. 10 out of 10, like 10, get them out right now. One, like what are we talking about? It's, it's a ridiculous notion. Day is the right guy for the job. Ohio State hasn't regressed under him. Michigan has gotten better. Where Ohio State was in 2018 was not good enough to beat top SEC teams. They're closer to that goal now than ever. The issue is Michigan is getting better. But that won't even matter in a world with a 12-team playoff and a Big 12 champion and a Big 10 championship rematch. Call me crazy, but I don't care if Ohio State loses to Michigan if they win a national championship. It's not 1965. So I will say that's not me saying that. That was a texter saying that. But I do think I, I I'm not reading that. It's like I don't endorse that. I, I I don't think anybody really thinks it's okay if you lose to Michigan, but there is some bigger picture there stuff there. And that's sort of what you were getting at, right? With you're mad at Ryan day. And then you come around a little bit. That was just encapsulating what some people thought. And then I have 400 things saying the only thing that matters is beating Michigan. So that matters. I'm not ignoring that side of it. There were just so many that text kind of stood out because there weren't a ton of people saying that, but I will say this. So this goes back to the pressure cooker thing. People are upset about Ryan Day right now. Some people were asking, like, is this on Gene Smith to have hired uh, a guy who'd never been a head coach before? Because, I, I mean, like, when you really step back and say, oh, who's Michigan has, had, who's Michigan's head coach? It's like, oh, Michigan's head coach? He's this guy who used to be the quarterback at Michigan, right? Then he played in the NFL, and then he coached in the NFL, and he coached in a Super Bowl against his brother. And then he came to Michigan. It's like, well, who's Ryan Day? It's like, Ryan Day, huh? He was a quarterback's coach in the NFL, and then he had never been a head coach, and then he came to Ohio State, and then he became the head coach. And he had never been a head coach for a minute in his life before he was the head coach at Ohio State. That is quite a difference in resume. So some people are saying, like, is this on Gene Smith to have hired Ryan Day? And then again, this is sort of an Ohio conversation of why didn't you hire an Ohio guy? So I do remember, like, I do think in the end when they hired Urban, if they hadn't gone with Urban, 
I do think the other two guys would have been Luke Fickle or Bo Pelini. Bo Pelini's an Ohio guy, played at Ohio State. Do you want Bo Pelini? If they didn't hire Ryan Day, I do think in the moment that it might have been Matt Campbell, who's from Maslin, and Matt Campbell's an Ohio guy, and he was a really hot coach a couple years ago. And in the last two years uh, at Iowa State, uh, I thought they might be a playoff team last year. People were so excited. They went 7-6, and six, and Iowa State is 4-8 and eight this year, went 1-8 and eight in the Big 12, finished last. So <clears throat> that doesn't mean Matt Campbell's a bad coach, but do you, you want Matt Campbell because he's from Ohio? Like, that's what you want? Like, he's done a great job at Iowa State. He's 46-42, and 3-9, and 8-5, and 8-5, and 7-6, and 9-3 and peak, 7-6, and 4-8. and eight. So when he, when Ryan Day was hired in 2019, Matt Campbell had gone three and nine, eight and five, and eight and five at Iowa, Iowa State. After he was the head coach at Toledo for five years, so like, is is that what you want instead? So my my point is that this is a pressure cooker job, and to be frank, in my time here, you guys have gotten mad at all of them. So Luke Fickle, who people some people want now, um, I can remember. And I did. Here's another text. I did say this from the 802 because we texted about Luke Fickle going to Wisconsin. Good luck to Luke. I hated him as our defensive coordinator and interim head coach, though. Long time ago, he looks great now as a head coach. So, like, there are a lot of you who did not love Luke Fickle while he was here. Luke Fickle got a lot of heat. Remember the thing in 2012 where like the pizza delivery guy made a crack to his wife delivering a pizza, and it became like a story because the defensive. Because like they said, like how your guys got to tackle better. That was in 2012 when they went undefeated. <laughs> I was in the middle of that season when Luke Fickle had like tried to hold the program together with masking tape for a year after Jim Tressel stuck around when Urban Meyer was hired. They were undefeated in 2012, and the pizza delivery guy was like, "You're not tackling good enough." That's what people thought about Luke Fickle when he was here. Now he leaves, right? And then Bill Davis comes, and it's like, "Oh my God, get Luke Fickle back!" But I mean, honestly, if you're honest with yourself during Luke Fickle's tenure, you loved him as a Buckeye. Did you love him as a coach? Did you love him as a coach? So that was a reality. Urban Meyer, by the end, was like dropping to his knees on the sideline because he had a cyst in his head and he was putting so much pressure on himself that he couldn't really function anymore. And by the way, he he had like a borderline nepotism situation with Zach Smith because Zach Smith was Earl Bruce's grandson and Earl Bruce is like a second father to Urban that he didn't handle very well. So I understand all the good about Urban, but like Urban like drove himself out of the out of the game here. And then we all know what happened in Jacksonville that wasn't great when like the Urban Miles Urban Myers like style of doing things didn't go over so well there. So lots of good things about Luke. You didn't all love Luke. Lots of good things about Urban. He drove himself nuts here right? Jim Trestle. Again, many fans were so tired of the style of Jim Trestle and the recruiting at the end was kind of taking a dip and they were winding up taking, right? Jim Bowman, Jim Trestle employing Jim Bowman for as long as he did, people were going bonkers. And I don't know that he ever would have gotten rid of Jim Bowman because he was so loyal, like loyal to a fault, stale, so stable they're stale. But great, but nine and one against Michigan won a national title, made two other national title games. Unbelievable. It drove you crazy at times what Jim Tressel did.
right? Right? We're being honest, right? So here we are with Ryan Day, and a lot of you are mad at him, but you always get mad at at the Ohio State head coach. You always get mad at the Ohio State head coach. So are you mad at him, like, irrevocably? Like, that's it? It's broken? Or are you mad at him now because this is a low point and that wasn't good enough? It wasn't good enough. It wasn't. So it's tough when you lose to Michigan, which we're all finding out. But in the end, I would just try to put it in context uh, a little bit. It's always going to matter. But I, I don't agree with the texture. He says, like, I don't care if they lose to Michigan in, in the 12-team playoff era. Like, I, I, that's not right. I don't, I don't think that's right. That's, that's not. My opinion of, is that's not correct. But I also do think, in the end, I don't know if the word is spoiled. There's actually two more things I want to say now because I'm remembering them. Someone had texted and said, I'm I'm figuring out now what it was like to be a Michigan fan for 20 years. And I and like I don't right, it's not that. This is worse because it was a surprise. Right? That's I don't know that anybody has gone through this. This would have been like what Michigan felt in 01. When trust they're two ten and one against Cooper, and here comes Tress and bang bang. Oh one, oh two, oh my god, it's flipped and it's off. That's what Michigan felt then, because you're surprised by it. But then over time, I do think like Michigan fans got used to losing, right? So it doesn't mean that you like it, but it doesn't shock you the same way. From the 618, I have lived through the Cooper years of losing to Michigan, but this loss hurts more to me because it was so unexpected, right? So over time in the Cooper years, and again, Earl, you're coming off, Earl was uh, five and four in the game. You're coming off that, and even Woody, like the 10-year war, basically, like right, the last 10 years of Woody and the 90s were, that's two decades of it being even. And this is what we talked about before, but I don't necessarily think like it's an excuse for losing all perspective on the game because Ohio State went 17-2 and over 19 years. Like, I don't, like, of course, I like, I guess I understand it, but also I don't think that you can expect to go 34-4 and then just because you're 17-2. and So... Yes, it's different, and yes, it hurts more, as this person says. This loss hurts more to me because it was so unexpected. During the Cooper years, you would just expect to lose a heartbreaking game to Michigan. Now, after nearly 20 years of dominance and superior recruiting classes, I have raised my expectations that Ohio State should never lose to Michigan in such an embarrassing way. It was only three years ago that the divide between the schools seemed impossibly wide, then all of a sudden the series flipped. As non-Ohio State fans... I'm sure you might find it hard to believe that even if Ohio State backdoors its way into the playoffs and wins a national championship, this season would still be disappointing for a section of the fan base. All of next year doesn't matter. Even if Buckeyes go 11-0 and beat teams by 40 every week, I can't get excited or think of the playoffs until Ohio State beats Michigan. Until then, nothing else matters. I don't have a hard time envisioning that even if you backdoor the playoff, that you would people would find this disappointing. And again, that's one of the other points that I haven't mentioned yet. It's not just losing, but the way they lost. Again, it is a one-score game with seven minutes left. It was a one-score game with four minutes left last year. It wasn't, I don't think it was absolute dominance for 60 minutes. Um, but it's missed opportunities. It's Ohio State being less competent than Michigan when it mattered, right? It's all those, it's the blown coverages. I, I understand that. A lot of people are saying it's not just the loss, it's the way they lost. And that does matter, right? Absolutely, I understand that. Um, but I do think in the end, this hurts more because you were surprised by it. So I think you should cherish the 17-2, and two, but I, I, I do think 
Like at some point, you're just doing it to yourself. Someone was texting and saying, like, I, I was throwing up during the game. Like, I can't, like, people are texting and saying, like, you're making yourself sick about it. And if a driving force of making yourself sick is that you, you were so, like, you, you just think any loss to Michigan's, Michigan is absolutely 1000% unacceptable because that had been that way for, for two, gener- for two decades. I do think doing that to yourself is not healthy. So it's not accepting it, but it's understanding that sometimes you lose to good teams. So I do. I think that's two different things. So again, that really is pod splaining. It's okay. You guys lost. Just put it in context and, you know, go on a picnic. That's, that's not what I'm trying to say. But I, like, I don't buy, and Stephen was sort of saying that a lot, like the idea of like, well, it's different now because Ohio State won 17-2. and two. So no coach can ever lose to Michigan again, or no fan can ever tolerate it without it ruining your life for a year. Like, I, that's crazy to me. Teams lose sometimes. It's not acceptable. But I don't think, I don't think un, two decades of unbridled joy should now mean that two years of losing is absolute misery. I was so happy for 20 years that my life is ruined for these two. I don't think is the healthy way to go. This is the last thing. So my point there is like, it's Ohio State coaches are, are held to a very high standard. And I, in my experience, firsthand experience, you guys have had complaints, sometimes valid complaints about very high achieving people. And so that's happening right now with Ryan Day, but let's not act like that is the only time that's happened. This is, again, when I was much newer here and I was like, man, like, I don't know. They won the national title in 02 and like they finished second in 06 and 07. That seems pretty good to me. And that was not the feedback that I got from the people who uh, who care about this team most passionately. As Chip Kelly was to Mark Helfrich, it could be that Urban Meyer is to Ryan Day. So this is a thing that that has been brought up. This is, right, like the coach who's sort of the understudy to a very successful head coach, and then the main guy leaves, and the next guy takes over, and it looks okay for a year or two, and then it's not okay when it becomes like more that coach's program, right? And that, and that making that comparison, that's like the worst case scenario. Like Mark, nobody wants to be Mark Helfrich, right? That like, oh, well... You know, he made a national championship game with Chip's guys, and then he fell apart on his own. So I will say this. Uh, Mark Helfrich lasted four years at Oregon before he got fired. He went 11-2, and 13-2, made the national championship game and lost. 9-4, and 4-8. Four, four so in his four years, he was 37-16. and 16. In Ryan Day's four years, he's 42-5. and five. Chip Kelly, the previous four years before Mark Helfrich, Chip Kelly was 46 and seven. Urban Meyer was 48 and six. So very similar winning percentages, right? So Chip Kelly was an 868 winning percentage. Mark Helfrich was 698. Urban Meyer was an 889 winning percentage. Ryan Day was 894. Um, My point there is losing to Michigan twice is not the same thing as going nine and four and four and eight. So it doesn't excuse Michigan, 
the Michigan loss or the play calling problems or maybe some dips in recruiting that are still going to show up or all the things we've talked about. But let's just be aware of the comparisons and like, well, you know, this is Ryan Day had five losses and Mark Helfrich had 16. So it's, 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 I understand what you're saying. Like theoretically, I understand what you're saying. When you look at the comparison, it's, it's not really the same thing. So that's where we are. I don't even know if it's going to be rants anymore. I don't, I don't know. I do feel like it's changed. I feel like everything around Ohio State's changed. You guys know that, right? I think you feel like your fandom has changed. I, that's, let me write that down. We'll do that. What's changed? What has changed about being an Ohio State football fan now? My advice, not advice. My view is don't let what has changed in your feelings change the program because your anger or disappointment is expressed in such a way as a group. You guys are powerful. You guys are really powerful. And I saw at least one mom tonight, mom of a player, I think you'll probably see more coming out and and talking about these young men and the criticism they're receiving and that kind of thing. And that's just, that's how this works. And they can't escape it. And they get the glory when it works. And so they can't escape it uh, when it goes wrong. But I do think if it's done too often and for too long, it legitimately, in this era, in this era in which we have never seen Ohio State sort of face an on-field thing like this, I do think it could be detrimental to the health of the program. Okay, thanks for listening. We're still going to have fun and do goofy stuff in the offseason, right? We're not going to just like for 365 days be like, oh, let's break down this other thing that's wrong with the program. Um, but in the end, nobody thinks this is okay, including the people, especially the people in the building. Thanks to you guys for listening. We'll be back Wednesday pod, Thursday pod. We'll have a gambling pod on Friday, looking at the conference championship games. But the next two days is going to be still breaking down stuff, uh, about how people feeling about stuff, where the shortcomings were, why they happened, how they can be fixed. We'll get into that for sure. For now, I'm Doug Maurice, and that was Buckeye Talk. Mm-hmm.